Hi there, Womance listeners. This is Isabel, and I'm here to do a quick little introduction because this week's episode is different than our regular format. In it, you'll hear me interview author Caroline Linden, who you all may remember wrote the amazing Love and Other Scandals from her Scandal series. This was a lifelong dream for me, and the way that it happened is that I simply emailed Caroline Linden and I said, hey, I would love to talk to you about writing the romance genre and your experience of it. And would you believe it, listeners? She said yes. We talk about a lot of different stuff. There are a couple things that I want to say about the interview. First off, it was really awesome of Caroline Linden, who is a famous published writer, to say yes to a podcast that just started, and we are really grateful that she did that. Second, I have not conducted very many interviews, so if the questions seem a little wondering or not hard enough or any of those things, I hope that you'll excuse my inexperience, and I hope to get better at this, and if you like the interview, if you like hearing from authors, let us know. Let us know if this is a feature that you'd like to see happen more often here on Womance. Uh, And let us know if you think the interview was a Womance or a Nomance. Anyway, thanks for listening. And as always, please subscribe. Please rate us five stars. Please tell everybody in your life that you love us. Okay. Hello? Hi, Caroline Linden. This is Isabeau. Hi, how are you? (laughs) Really well, thanks. I'm trying not to fangirl out and shake and cry at the same time. Oh, why would you? <laughs> <laughs> because I've only loved your books for the last 10 years. Um, that makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> you sound so nice and comforting, just like all of your books. I talked to my mom about this interview because I was so excited. <laughs> and she wanted me to ask you what the first romance novel you ever read was. I guess it's not really considered a romance novel. It's a young adult novel, but it was um, it's called Calico Captive. Ooh. Okay. Was by um, this. We're talking like middle school. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But and so it's not really a romance, but the the romance theme, the romance is there. It's based on a true story of a frontier family mm-hmm. in I think New Hampshire, captured by a tribe of Native Americans. I forget which one, and basically taken on this march. And they were eventually sold as captives to the French in Quebec. Oh, wow. And ransomed back after a time in captivity by their friends and family back in New Hampshire. And so it, it's told through the eyes of the 17-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. At the start of the book, she's just made herself a brand new dress, and it's beautiful, and mm-hmm. she's 17, and there's the boy she likes is there at this party that her family gives. And she's trying to, she's angling for a way to talk to him, and it kind of never really <laughs> gets there. And then their cabin is attacked that night after he's oh, gone back no. to the settlement. And so there's some Separated, but he's one of the ones who comes to ransom her back. Oh. So, like, just throughout the whole book, I kept reading through the whole period of captivity and privation, and it was hard, and mm-hmm. things were terrible, and I just kept reading the whole time because I was like, he's going to come back. He's going to come back and get her. <laughs> and uh, he does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love the satisfaction that comes from stories like that, where it's like you have this like intense danger and then like, you know, deep in your heart that it's going to end up happily, but like you have to go through and slog through all the mud to get there. And like, that's what's so satisfying about romance in general. And it's even awesome because while they're in, after they've been sold to the French in Quebec Mm -hmm. and they're working in this kind of indentured servitude, I guess, sort of slavery almost. Yeah. (laughs) They're, They're not really slaves, but they can't really leave. And... There's a, a French guy mm-hmm. who likes her. Ooh. So she's got this she's got this served up moment where she could go with this other guy who's good looking and he's there ready to save her and he's really into her and she's thinking instead of this twenty year old boy who wants to be a minister <laughs> from back home on the frontier in New Hampshire. And so uh. she turns down the rich, good looking French dude and uh. says no. The heart wants and what the heart no wants. communication. Like, her heart is so pure. And devoted. She turns this guy down. She's waiting, <laughs> she's waiting for the boy from back home. So. That's lovely. Yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. My mom will love that, too. And I'll make sure that she looks into that book. <laughs> <laughs> the first real, I mean, actual published as a, this is a romance, and the romance is the main point of this book, was I'm not 
sure of the exact one, but I know it was when I found like Lisa Kleypas. Mm, yes. And some of her earlier books, and it was just like, I think my hair was like standing on end as I finished the book. Just like, <laughs> holy smoke. There are books like that. There are whole shelves of books like this, and I'm just going to live in the library. <laughs> So that was she's Lisa Clay. This was one of my my first favorites where I just went, damn, that's what books ought to be. Oh, so. that's wonderful. So you've really you've really loved the genre, but uh, you didn't go to school for English or Regency or Victorian. Um, oh no, <laughs> you, you went to school for math. Actually, I went for physics. Oh wow! And, and physics kind of derailed a little bit. I had a bad experience <laughs> and I had to declare a major and I had like a week to pick a new one so mm-hmm. I picked math oh, wow. because that was the only other class that I had really liked freshman year <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out great for me I think math is so romantic because I met my husband in the math department he picked me up by saying I will help you with your problem sets how about that and I was like take me out of that's his own romance story. I love it. Um, I also find after, no kidding. I also find math very romantic. There's something about like algorithms and you know parabolas that sounds you know sensual. <laughs> so, how did you move from the math department and your problem sets into romance? Um, so first of all, I just want to say I was not a mathematician. I got a math degree, which is nothing remotely compared to. Remember, <laughs> I said I met my husband in the math department. He was a graduate student. He was getting his PhD. Oh, wow. He was a real mathematician. He's not anymore, but <laughs> story. Uh, so sometimes people will say, how did you go from being a mathematician? I'm like, hold the phone right there. Uh, I was never a mathematician. I got a math degree, which qualified me to get a job writing computer code. Oh. Life insurance administration software. Oh, wow. Which is not even half as sexy as it sounds. <laughs> and I did that for a while. And then I <laughs> basically quit to mm-hmm. have kids, thinking mm-hmm. I'll take a couple of years off, mm-hmm. you know, while they're really little and I can't fit into my work clothes anyway. And I started writing a book at nights. Like the only free time I had was when they were both asleep taking a nap, mm-hmm. so which was, you know, approximately like 28 minutes a day, <laughs> spread out in five minutes here and there. So I, I went, I went to the library, which was two blocks from our house, mm. and I just went down the aisle and cleaned out the books. I had like five minutes in the library, so I went straight to the romance section and just was like one, two, three, four, five in the bottom of the stroller, and then I had to run for the door before somebody started crying. Wow. So after, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago, I started writing my own story. But it was going to be a mystery Mm -hmm. because I love mysteries too. Mm -hmm. And after about 50 pages, I realized it was this couple, uh, this man and this woman, and she was trying to decide if he was the good guy or the bad guy. Mm. And it was really all about their relationship. And then along the way, there were pieces of mystery. And so I said, I think this is actually a romance novel. That's awesome. So uh, when you're hurtling through the shelves of the library, baby in tow, uh, what were the five books that you picked up or one of them? What was one of the first authors that you looked to? Um, I remember the first Juliet Quinn book mm. that I read. And that one really caught my attention, A, because it was very funny. Mm-hmm. And as much as I loved like Lisa Kleypas, her books weren't funny you know they were they were serious and there was dark and dangerous stuff happening a lot of times in those books and like Mm -hmm. people got deathly ill and I read this book by Julia Quinn and it was funny all the way through it wasn't there wasn't anything dark or scary you were smiling through the whole book you felt like these were people you would actually really like to know Mm -hmm. you wouldn't mind trading places with some of them you know like this was really just a wonderful world that she built and the other thing was she had gone to my same college oh so I emailed her and basically begged for any sort of advice or Mm -hmm. information and I thought if I ever hear from her (laughs) it's gonna be a form letter saying hi Thanks for your message. I'm super busy. (laughs) 
but she wrote back this very personal letter and she was great she was just so wonderful it turned out we'd actually lived in the same dorm we were back for a year I cannot tell you the cred I got with my college roommates when I told them that Julia Quinn had lived in our dorm (laughs) so it must have been just this like beautiful coming together when she blurbed your book I love it when I see authors blurbing each other and like Julia Quinn wrote on your uh, love and other scandals that it's everything she wants in a romance book Um, yes that was very nice of her to do that (laughs) I have remained a Julia fan, for, a Julia fan for forever for a variety of reasons. But yeah, she's just she's just a fabulous friend as well now. That's wonderful. I can't tell you how much I just love that. That's ugh, what a small world. I know, right. <laughs> Uh, so you, like Julia Quinn, work in historical romance almost exclusively. Uh, what do you love about working in that uh, subgenre? I think one of the great things about romance is it really offers you a chance to escape to a, a whole different world. Mm-hmm. You can plug yourself into that whole experience of falling in love, of meeting that person, that pulse-pounding is this going to work out? Are we going to make it together as mm-hmm. a couple? You know, that, that very most human, I think, of feelings. Yeah. And there may be, you know, fighting off vampires or <laughs> escaping from the mob or something else along the way. But it's it's just really, I hate the word escapism because it implies like your life sucks so much you need to get away from it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like going to the most awesome movie ever yeah the book your imagination is pulling up all the the sights the smells the the sounds you know the music you your mind can create things that can just really take you away from you know what's going on around you and and sometimes you really need that like when you've got two little kids who don't want to sleep at the same time (laughs) you kind of feel like you know my life doesn't suck but I could really use a little break from it yeah now yeah that's what... a world where diapers are not a big feature. <laughs> right. And there's like, it, like one of the things that I love about romance is that it can really, it's, yeah, I agree. There's like something fraught about saying escapist, but like it just like somehow relaxes the tension or like takes some of the heaviness away. Like it just, it's like a space of calm where you get to just like delve into. And like, I love what you said about humor too. Cause like, I find your books so humorous and like, that's one of the things that I really love about them. And one of the things that I really love about your heroines is that, they're generous and kind and often selfless but not in ways that those words are like typically marshaled like um they're never passive and even though some of their qualities might be um exclusively feminine or like seen as passive the kindness of your heroines is always really tough and productive in a way that i find really fascinating especially in terms of their relationships with other women can you talk about writing those kinds of like tough women who also have to like corset themselves and live in these incredibly strict and strictured societies? So every heroine is partly me. Yeah. I was not an English major. My imagination is not strong enough to write somebody who is completely and totally different from me. So there's a a big chunk of myself in there. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like the most annoyingly practical person. (laughs) My teenage daughter would tell me at times, Mom, you are ruining like every single movie with your comments. (laughs) Nobody cares that she didn't turn off all the lights in the house before she left. So, you know, I don't know. I I don't want to write a heroine that I wouldn't like to know. But at the same time, I see some of the heroines. This, This is really more years ago I don't see it as much today so selfless everybody else deserves everything and she deserves nothing and she'll sacrifice herself like I have four younger brothers and no one of them gets into trouble he loses everything he owns I'm sorry he's going to jail I am not gonna go sleep with one of his friends to pay off his debt yeah and so I just thought you know it's like what does that do that doesn't doesn't help your jerk of a brother who lost everything it doesn't save your father from jail it just saves him from the consequences of their own actions and I just don't have much patience with that on the other hand 
yeah, if it were my own children, yes, I, yeah. I would do anything for somebody you really love. Yeah. You know, of course you would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's a so, that's such a good way to think about it, where it's like your heroines are obviously on hand for people that they love, but they're not going to save anyone from the consequences of like their own bad decision making. They'll like help out when, you know, the rubber meets the road, but none of them are ever Cinderella about it or like Snow White. None no, of your, none of your no heroines. Yeah, you have no sleepers. And I love that about your writing because I really, I just, oh, they're so fun to be with and be around when I'm in your books. Um, I'm so glad. Yeah. So you said that (laughs) in this like beautiful and self-deprecating way, you said that um, there's always a bit of you in these heroines. Is that, I mean, that sounds so brave and revealing, like when a book comes (laughs) out, like. Well, it's usually the boring parts. How I imagine myself if I had been born much more good looking. Oh no. You know, if I liked to exercise, for example. Right. Or if I had some talent at music or art or something like that, you know, what would I do with it? How would I use my skills for good? And so I don't want people to think like I am a heroine because that's not really true. But there has to be something in there for me to relate to. And like I said, my imagination isn't good enough to make somebody (laughs) totally and completely different. Because if I'm writing a character and I get to a point and I think to myself... All right, so this would be a very exciting thing to do, but it would also be the dumbest possible thing to do for somebody in that actual situation. Mm-hmm. I just can't. I can't write the crazy, wild, off the wall thing. I just can't because the whole time I'll be sitting there shaking my head, going, "This is gonna blow up in your face. <laughs> <laughs> this is not gonna go well." This is. You know, I'll, I'll go a little bit outside the lines, and I want my characters to be bold. But sometimes I'm reading books, and it seems like I don't know. A, Again, the authors just much have much more incredible imaginations than I do. But sometimes it seems like we need drama. And so this totally unexpected thing will happen. Yeah. And I don't always follow along with that. I spend most of my time thinking, why would you do that? Why, why would you think that was a good idea? <laughs> you knew this was a bad idea. You spent three pages thinking about how bad this idea was, and now you've done it. Exactly. Oh, look, and now the bad guy is What a big surprise. Yeah, like you knew this would happen. Yeah. You should have known it. <laughs> you thought long enough about it. And that's like one of the things I think, maybe why historical novels for you are so um, imaginatively interesting because like those strictures are in place, like the consequences are dire, even for like simple things. And I'm thinking especially about like 50 Ways to Sin and how all of your heroines work so hard to like get a hold of this copy of this like dirty mag. And like it has true consequences for them if they're caught with it, like they can't like go out and like go in society and like their parents get mad and the way in which the simple things have true and lasting consequences for these heroines is like it's like the drama of the mundane but it's like so fraught and so interesting you make it so interesting well I think human nature hasn't changed all that much Mm -hmm. and so you mentioned 50 ways to sin that idea came from when I discovered my barely teenage daughter had bought 50 shades of gray Oh, really? <laughs> and it was not the kind of book she read. She, mm-hmm. I have no idea. And so, you know, she was young enough. She didn't have a credit card. So we shared this account. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, this book mm-hmm. pops up mm-hmm. on the account list. And mm-hmm. I said, you know, just could you tell me why you bought this book? <laughs> and she... <laughs> she was not angry. She was not. She was not happy with me for noticing that. For I sure. Bought it first of all, but then finally she just kind of said, "You know what? Just like everybody's talking about it, I just wanted to know what the fuss was about." <laughs> and I thought, you know what? That's so incredibly relatable. Yeah. What What is the fuss? What is in this book? And she's right. At the time she bought it. When she was that age, it was everywhere. Yeah. There were sketches on Saturday Night Live. All the mainstream comedians were talking about it and joking about it. And yeah. Like, we went on vacation to um, to the beach. Mm-hmm. I swear to God, every third woman there was reading it. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I <laughs> remember was that. everywhere. Yeah. So. No escape. Naturally, she wondered. She was that age or she was, you know, starting to really pay attention to what other people in the world were doing. Mm-hmm. And she just wanted to know what it was. So that's what I thought would have appealed to the heroines in my story and it 
it was meant to be like Jane Austen erotica. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I wrote some of them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and they are. They're, they're super titillating. I totally understand why the Westons were willing to, you know, sacrifice they're a ball. They're dirty stories. Yeah. And so, you know, just like nowadays, teenage boys, or, well, when I was a kid, teenage boys would, like, hide the penthouse and whatever mm-hmm. under their mattress. And, you know, girls would get books from the library, and you would know where to go because the pages were folded down, right? That was where the good stuff. <laughs> happen and they would get passed around you know yeah the band room or wherever and you didn't have to read the whole book you just had to like turn to the pages that were folded <laughs> down and you'd read those three or four pages and you'd pass it on and you'd feel very you know mature and dangerous and, and very risque yeah oh god I remember the band room we used to do that that was amazing exactly. <laughs> so that's where 50 shade 50 ways to sin came from the idea was what if there's this book that everybody's talking about but it's dirty enough that it's not proper drawing room conversation (laughs) and i think i even said in there that you know penelope weston got Mm -hmm. the first couple by stealing them from her mother she did yeah that's definitely what you say and it's so good it was just everybody was reading it but that meant her mother knew exactly how dirty they were (laughs) her unmarried daughter was reading them she would not be happy no, she would not have been. And I love the way in which, like, they gift the magazines to each other. And, like, again, you, you write female friendships in this way that's so active and supportive and funny and sweet. I mean, Penelope's so great in the way that she's just, like, her selflessness is so active. And, you know, she's she's going to go to the mat for her friend Olivia, like, no matter what. And I, I think that's how female friendships are. And it's, like, one of the things that media in general gets wrong a lot of the time. But, like, romance novels get right a lot of the time and I just oh I love it so much Um, I think so I every romance is different but to me very few women live really alone without other women around them everybody's got a sister a mother a neighbor next door even if it's you know just somebody that they work with you know somebody that they talk to about stuff right so I always want to put somebody in there I've written a few female characters who were sort of alone and it always feels wrong <laughs> yeah, it feels, it feels like this poor woman. Yeah, she's so isolated. Yeah, and like, and then like the building of the friendships is also just so sweet. I love that aspect of it too. Um, so, one of the things that started interacting with you on Twitter, and one of the things that I loved immediately was that you were thanking all of your followers for the follow, and that felt so just like the genre in general, like it's like sort of a warm hug from a stranger that's going to be your friend. And you know that immediately. Um, It's this like moment of recognition. And (laughs) I think you're a really great example of how that works um, in Romance Landia. What do you love about interacting with the community of Romance Landia? So first of all, I have to cop to the fact that that is an automatic thing. That's (laughs) amazing. That's so smart. Turn it on. (laughs) I am appreciative for everybody who follows me. And I do view everybody as you never know where your next good friend is going to come from and what connections you'll make and what people you'll really hit it off with. And there are people that I talk to, you know, my husband or somebody say, oh, you know, my friend so-and-so. And he's like, who is this friend? I've never met this friend. I'm like, actually, neither have I. So we're friends on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. We talk on Twitter all the time. All the time. And it feels he, he so good. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like he goes to an actual office. He sees other people every day. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that you have to take out your phone and open Twitter to talk to your friends is a little different to him. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know what other writing communities are like. The romance community is incredibly, in my experience, supportive and welcoming and friendly, which is kind of strange because a lot of writers are, are very introverted mm-hmm. and shy. And it can be a fairly solitary job. Mm-hmm. You know, most of us don't live in the same place. We're spread all over the world. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, there are people that I only ever see at conference, you know, which <laughs> somebody can't go to conference like, oh, I won't see her for two years, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, is kind of sad. But at the same time, thanks to social media and email and all of that, you can still stay in touch and your friendship can keep chugging along and mm-hmm. be just as strong. And then when you finally do see each other, it's like, yay, yeah. not a moment has, has passed. You know, nothing, we haven't lost anything since yeah. we last saw each other two and a half years ago 
So I, that is one thing that I love. I have to say so many people have just been kind mm-hmm. and generous. When I was a beginner, Julia Quinn wrote back to me. I hadn't even written a whole book, and she wrote back to me and was incredibly generous with her advice. When I finally did publish a book and uh, was looking for a cover quote, mm-hmm. I cold emailed Eloisa James, mm-hmm. who had also gone to my college, and basically begged her to reject me out of hand that I asked if she would blurb my book. <laughs> and she said yes. She, oh, was wow. on, she was on sabbatical for the summer in Italy, and she said, you know, I'm really sorry, but if you'll mail me the book... I'll read it and blurb it. I was like, oh. what, what will I email? Well, I email my book to Eloisa James. You know, let me set a land speed record getting to the post office. And uh. so it was, I think, a wonderful lesson for me that mm-hmm. I feel like it's very much a community of pay it forward. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you never know where your next friend is going to come from. You never know where your next brainstorming partner is going to be. And it's just a, a great community. I, I really like that about the romance. And I know like little things flare up and, mm-hmm. and there are definitely some tensions within it at times. But for the most part, I think if you approach people honestly and in a friendly manner, mm-hmm. they reciprocate, you know? So. Yeah. So um, we're going to walk into one of those tensions in the romance world right now. And we've talked on our show uh, about some of the problems in the genre regarding diversity and the lack thereof. Um, Elizabeth Kingston has this incredible lecture up, which we'll link to, called Romanticizing the White Supremacy. And, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and in that lecture, Kingston brings up some terrifying points about the genre that we love. And one of the points that she brought up that really astounded me and made me feel both like ignorant but about white supremacy, but also about stuff in general, was like that the white supremacists have appropriated England in particular as like the home base of what it means for whiteness and like all of this medieval iconography and Elizabeth Kingston herself writes medieval romance and she's talking about how all of this imagery and like coded language is sneaking into specific kinds of spheres because of white supremacy and that the romance genre isn't immune to that um, and hasn't ever really been, um, especially the historical part of it, and that it implicitly excludes happy endings for people who aren't rich, white, or Christian by erasure. Kingston says that authors have the power of shaping history because we tell the stories. And I was wondering as a story storyteller yourself, how do you approach that responsibility, especially now that romance is sort of newly awakened to this issue that's, you know, been simmering for a while? So I think some authors have been more awake to it than maybe was evident Mm -hmm. for for a while. It's a fine line to walk Mm -hmm. because some of the stuff that you're talking about in history is very dark Mm -hmm. and you read some of it like some of the research I'm doing for the book I'm writing now and you come away basically hating people yeah and thinking thank god they're already dead because these people were terrible they were horrible and they screwed the world for generations to come by poisoning the well between you know various peoples and and various cultures since again I hate the word escapism but Mm -hmm. usually when people read a romance they want to come out of it with a very happy feeling yeah you don't want to get to the end and feel sober and chastened by what your forebears have done Mm -hmm. you you want to come out of it with a smile on your face Mm -hmm. so I don't want to erase people but I think there is a little bit of a risk that if you focus on the really, really dark stuff, mm-hmm. and it's hard to work that into your book, I think, yeah. some of that stuff into your book, and still have a really pleasurable read, just because some of it is so dark and so ugly. And so the book I'm researching right now, there's a lot of stuff about the slave trade in it. Mm-hmm. And again, it's one of those things where I'm just like, thank God all these people are dead because they didn't deserve to live in the first place. Yeah. To be honest, they were so awful and so inhumane. And it's yeah. just unbelievable. Like you're reading it with your mouth hanging open. Like, I can't believe humans actually did that and said that and thought that. And I know I'm going to be, <laughs> I kind of feel like I'm, I'm probably walking into a bonfire with this topic. Um, putting it in my book, but it is true mm-hmm. that, that some of, especially in historical romance, the, the big fortunes, the dukes, the incredibly wealthy sits, you know, the, the guys with a lot of money, it is true that a lot of them made their money in 
disagreeable way. Yeah, the slave trade, sugar plantations, the entire rape, erasure, and colonization of North America, South America, India. You look at India, but even if you just stick in England and say, okay, well, where did this guy get his money? He got it from the mines. Well, mining is a dangerous occupation now. It was worse, much worse, 200 years ago. Especially if you have seven-year-olds doing it, yeah. Even still today, if you dig into any large fortune, Mm -hmm. Carnegie. Oh, for sure. Oh, my goodness. Zuckerberg. (laughs) Yeah. Jack Dorsey. Look at any of these people. There's something disagreeable in how they made their money. Yeah. It just kind of seems to be the way of it. I just read a book recently where the hero was a venture capitalist. Mm Mm-hmm hedge fund kind of guy I forget exactly what he was and all I could think was you know, this guy's in the same class of people as like Martin Shkreli yeah so he's super rich and he's super hot and he's a nice guy but <laughs> the way he's making his money is you know breaking up people's companies and selling the pieces yeah defaulting on debts you know he's buying people out he's laying people off and so he himself in this book is a nice guy and it's just sort of glossed over that this is how he made his money finance it's just i think kind of the nature of that kind of obscene wealth like the focus on the billionaires yeah you know the the billionaires didn't make their money by working in a hospital as a surgeon where they operate in in underserved communities no so and they didn't do it building houses for Habitat for Humanity. And they didn't do it that way. <laughs> you know, there's just, I, I think there's always going to be a little bit of a glossing over of where all this money came from because that Cinderella fantasy is very strong. It is. I think you know, um, that, that at some point you could be so incredibly secure. Yeah. You don't have to worry about anything, you know, not, am I going to be able to afford a new car? Mm -hmm. Am I going to be able to afford new shoes? Yeah. Can I afford to have a kid? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's there. That's a beautiful dream. It is. The pull of that fantasy, I think, is strong. And one of the things that the romance genre isn't afraid to pull on at all, um, because it is so deeply steeped, not only in our culture, but I think really in Western culture in general. But I think one of the things that, I don't know, it's this glossing over that I think is the problem, because it does sort of represent this erasure where it's like, I'm a good guy, even if my great grandfather wasn't and did sugarcane. Or like one of the ways that historical romances I found is like, you'll have a duke who goes to the House of Lords and he's like, I'm going to pass a, you know, a child reform act so they won't work in the mines or I'll, I'll, you know, work for abolition. And like, I think part of the problem of that is that those recuperative moves of this obscene wealth of like, this like very tacit acknowledgement that these types of people were making this kind of money in ways that murdered millions is also there's like this weird recuperative move either at the very end of the book or in the epilogue where it's like he's not a bad guy because he's going to do this thing in the house of lords or he's not trafficking in human chattel anymore or like you know he gave up his plantation and i think that that too is a gloss and the combination of the one two gloss is like a one-two punch that like maybe romance needs to like investigate a little bit more, especially because one of the things that I think is so important about this genre and was certainly true of me, but like the way that I learned about primogenitor and the way like the dukes and marquises and earls work, I like I learned so much particular kinds of history. Like I know the difference between a coach and a barouche and like a hansom <laughs> cab and all of that I learned. Super right oh like I'm so good at trivia you have no idea and most of that is like coming from romance and so like you spend all of this beautiful time researching these beautiful books about like hooks and eyes and jumper stays and how somebody would do their hair with a curling iron that you can't plug in and would have to warm in actual coals like I know that you are doing this kind of research and that other women in the field are doing this research too so it it does feel sort of like I get what's happening in romance and why people are talking about historicals in in the specific discussion of this kind of erasure and this kind of gloss because it is problematic and you guys as like as authors it's it's not like you aren't seeing this like if you're doing this research in uh, the slave trade like yeah it is God <laughs> the stuff is just ridiculous um no i just want to say that like i saw some headline the other day that said you know yeah mr darcy's money probably came from the slave trade yeah and i thought really 
because, I mean, I've read that, I think they said up to 20% of the great fortunes were mm-hmm. connected in some way to the slave trade. They benefited from it, or they invested in it, or something. And I thought, well, that still leaves 80% that didn't. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that you have to look at every single rich guy mm-hmm. in a historical romance and say, he obviously made as many somehow off of being cruel and inhumane to other people. Because, you know, I don't know how much of that is really true. I mean, the greatest factor in wealth was land. People got given land for a variety of reasons. And then, you know, I'm not saying that the farmers who rented the land and paid rent to the rich guy who owned all the land. I'm not saying they had lives of incredible comfort and ease, but Mm -hmm. they weren't slaves. They generally weren't beaten and flogged and forced to work underground. And so... I don't want things to go too far and people to feel like every single duke is living on blood money because I don't think they all were. There were other ways to make money. There were other ways to be rich. And yeah, some of it was really, really bad. There were people unquestionably who, there were bishops who had money in the slave trade. Oh, yeah. It was just considered part of commerce this was a good investment opportunity yeah and some of them came to regret it like john newton Mm -hmm. and others were just kind of like yeah you know that's something i did i i was looking for an opportunity and there it was so i took it a lot of times i see people talk about historicals and they talk about well we don't want 21st century people in fancy dress clothes in our historicals we want real meaty historicals Mm -hmm. but a lot of the attitudes back then were pretty unpleasant repulsive yeah a lot of things were just accepted like that women weren't people (laughs) well uh, you know what that that's something that was very interesting uh as i'm working on this book Mm -hmm. (laughs) the the concept of owning another person but really the husband owns the wife oh yeah that you're legally dead that way it was you know marriage was pretty much up there with slavery yeah it it was a legal death in england and america up until like the 1840s and so like being a widow meant that you had more power yeah no being a widow meant you were free exactly (laughs) like you could own your own land you could own your own business yeah there were women who you know the husband died and they took over the business eleanor code is a wonderful example of that she really turned it into something and i mean her work was amazing highly valued so there are people, there are women who stepped out of that role. Mm-hmm. And there were men who supported them. There mm-hmm. were husbands who supported them. So For sure. Anyway, I think that's that's what I like about the Regency as opposed to the Victorian. The Victorian is when things really start to clamp down. Mm-hmm. And the Victorian era is, I think, worse for women in general yeah. than the, especially the late Georgian and the oh, yeah. Regency. That's indisputable. So, <laughs> the history yeah. proves that, like, like just <laughs> out and out. That some other author the other day and we're just talking about how how words can change Mm -hmm. and what they mean and so as part of the research that i did when i was doing the uh, scandals in 50 ways Mm -hmm. to sin i read a whole bunch of real historical erotica Mm -hmm. and including this one story called the school of venus i think and it's written as a dialogue between two women two Mm -hmm. young women and it's basically one telling the other all about sex Oh, wow. And how to have it and mm-hmm. what to do. And there are no euphemisms. And she even says at one point to her friend, you have to get yourself a, you know, a big friend, mm-hmm. a friend with benefits, yeah. basically. But she uses the F word, and it's just a word. Mm-hmm. They use it repeatedly, and it means it's like shack. Yeah. You know, that's just, you got to get, and these, are, these women are like 16 and 18 in the story. Mm-hmm. So... It's written in, I think, uh, I think the one I read, the version I read was like from 1680 or something. Yeah. It's really, really old. And and so it went from being a coarse, you know, probably a crude word for sex to by the Victorian era, it meant virtually rape. Mm-hmm. There was nothing pleasurable about it. It was disgusting. It was crude. It was gross. It was horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, that act associated with that word. Mm-hmm. And it changed you know, how people used it. And now it's, you know, the F word is considered, uh, you know, pretty vulgar. And mm-hmm. it's doesn't really have that, that warm, fuzzy, you know, good time feeling. I love the British word shag. I think that's such a... I love the British word shag too. I also love the movie Shag about the dance in the 60s. Um, I don't know that movie. <laughs> it's great. It has um, a lot of... Uh, 
the woman who is on the later years of the X-Files. I can't remember her name, but she's very good in it. Um, but one of the things that you just said about the Victorian era being super repressive and the idea that women were legally dead who, um, once they were married and that their husband and the wife become one person and that person is the husband. Right. And that like you then have no say over even your own fortune or any land that anybody left to you. And I think like, right. And the romance genre is unflinching in that way where it talks about like the status and state of women in Mm -hmm. this particular time and uses it as like a pretty, you know, cogent allegory for like the ways in which, you know, we still have to move forward in terms of like Me Too and pay equity and making sure that everybody has access to the things that they want. And I'm wondering if historicals can do this about women and like also make this wink, wink, nod, nod to our current moment. Like, can't we do that with the obscene wealth of the gentry in England? And can't we do that with in terms of like representing how multicultural London really was in 1810, Uh, especially after, I mean, really 1816 after Waterloo, like, especially with the opening of India, when you have second sons coming back with children that they did love and, you know, wanted them to inherit um, what they could. Like, isn't there a space in historicals for that? (laughs) India, so many, I read something the other way, somewhere that just recently, because I was doing a little research trawl, and you never know what you're going to find. Right. You just start following these little paws and you never know where they're going to go. In the 18th century, mm-hmm. so before Waterloo, mm-hmm. there were tens and tens of Englishmen in India. Up to a third of them were leaving money in their wills to Indian wives and spouses yeah. uh, and children. And they were, you know, sometimes they would send children back to England to be educated. In the Victorian era, that started to be much more frowned on. Oh, yeah. Society. And so they were, but, in, but earlier, they were accepted pretty much. You know, if you had the right connections and enough money, that sort of paved over the fact that your skin was a different color. And and there were people who came back to England and, you know, it was you were a little bit different, but it wasn't like you were horribly an other. And so, again, in the Victorian era, that really changed and it became much more of a thing where they would go over there and they would still amass a collection of women mm-hmm. that they kept and had children with, but they wouldn't bring them back. Right. Or maybe they'd bring the children back, but they'd leave the wives. Right. And so it just became not the thing guys did. Yeah, that changed specifically. Was much more open. It was, and especially with regards to India, before it became an official colony, it's like that moment that you're talking about is when the East India Trading Company was really the British law in India, and then in the 1840s, when the English government took a much stronger hand and basically took the East India Company for all it was worth in terms of what its holdings in India were. I mean, I think one of the things that I find really interesting about this moment in terms of romance is that I did, especially as a a younger woman, when I was reading all of these all the time, I did feel really empowered by this idea that things were worse in the Victorian era and things were worse for women and like you didn't have the opportunities. And there's like this idea of like chain breaking in romance that I find so interesting about like breaking out of the shell that like not only society made you Mm -hmm. um, in, but like the one that you've like allowed yourself to build because of society or because of your family or because of those things. And I think that like there's an opportunity here for like historicals to have a conversation about what it means in terms of race and class. If we can do it about women, I I don't, you know, I don't think it's to break the fantasy to like include other voices in that discussion. So that's definitely true. Part of the problem is a lot of those voices aren't nearly as present in the historical record. Yeah. So when you go and do your research, those voices were not recorded or they've been lost because, you know, the history was written by the white, white people, dudes. Basically. Yep. And, and they didn't bother to record what poor African women living in London did. Mm-hmm. So that is definitely an issue, finding those stories to make them real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to touch back a little bit again about something you said a little bit earlier about, you know, women mm-hmm. and, and marriage. I see a lot of times, especially reviewers and bloggers, punish the heroines of a book Mm -hmm. for being in love with the guy Mm -hmm. and refusing to marry him because he hasn't said the three magic words. 
And I get that, and that is kind of annoying, and it certainly depends on the book, how obvious it is that the hero is in love or whatever. Mm -hmm. But getting married to a guy was a big step. And there are many stories in history of women who basically got suckered into it. Yeah. And then the guy was like, all right, now you're mine. Your money's mine. Any children are mine. I can do what I want to you. I also don't want (laughs) to, I said that the Georgian era was better. The Georgian era was not 100% better, and things did improve. There were laws passed in the Victorian era that made things much better for women, like it gave them the right to see their children if mm-hmm. they got divorced, which did not exist. Uh, there's a case from the like, late 1700s where a woman, um, Lady Worsley, who her husband divorced her and he took the kids and she never saw them again. And that was just the way it was. They were his children yep. and she had no right at all whatsoever. So, you know, things were definitely changing. And I have seen authors work some of these things into their stories. And mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it's partly what's out there, what you can find, mm-hmm. what little research thread leads you to something that sparks a story in your head where you say, oh, this, this, I have to put this in a book. This is yeah. just incredible. This is what my heroine's been, this is what she needs mm-hmm. to, to really come alive. And this is going to be the motivating factor in my book. And so for the less visible peoples and cultures and things in history, it's just harder to find those stories. You have to look a lot harder to find the real nuggets in history that are out there where you can say, all right, this is what I'm going to base my story on, my book on. I know this is real. This really happened. I'm not making it up. I'm not creating an alternate history. I want at least a little something to, mm-hmm. hang, to hang my plot on. So it, it's more work digging for those stories and, and then constructing a story that will satisfy romance readers and provide a happy ending. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, you don't want to get to the end and be like, oh, they're pretty decent, but <laughs> everything yeah. else about the book was was very depressing and sad. And, and, you know, I think there's a reason why the ballroom romps are very popular. They, <laughs> they're fun. They're the rom-coms. They're, they are. They they're are happy. fun. You know, you read them and you think, well, I can relate to having, you know, a, a sister who needs to get smacked. And I can relate to having a mother who's crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, there's, yeah. Yeah, it's a delicate balance. Um, I think one of the things that I'm hearing you say, correct me if I'm wrong, though, is like this idea that you want your stories like hooked into a historical narrative that you can point to and say, this happened because I have it here in the historical record. And that you're reticent to invent stories that probably happened if you don't have an anecdote to point to. No, 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 no. I'm totally willing to invent a story that could have happened. Okay. But I always like to have, like, I wouldn't invent my Regency heroine just throwing down and saying, well, you know, I want a divorce. I'm out of here. I'm taking my money back that my father gave me because that wasn't, that was never going to happen. Right. So if I need to find something where I say, my characters could plausibly do this. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was very rare. Maybe nobody actually did it, but it didn't, it wasn't like completely against the law. Like, you know, mm, okay. I don't have, you know, I wouldn't have a Duke looking at his three children and say, you know, I'm going to decide which one of you will be the next Duke. Like, no, there were rules. Yeah. <laughs> it, there, it was all set out. It was out of his hands. And so, yeah, if I can invent a scenario that could have happened, absolutely. I'll write that. That's what I look for. Mm-hmm. But I like to ground it in what could have happened, what could be plausible for that, that time of history. Mm-hmm. No, I, I definitely think that there were a lot of stories, more exceptional stories that didn't always get recorded or didn't always get remembered. Um, people who did things and were punished and repressed for it. Um, I, I think those sometimes make the best stories, people who were ahead of their time. Yeah, I've been thinking about Afra Ben a lot lately and her play mm-hmm. Orinoco. Um, and what it means to be ahead of your time, because I think romance heroines are often ahead of their time. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I really love about the genre where it's like it exists in and out of its moment always, where it's like it's one foot in and one foot out. And like these heroines are bold and brash in ways that maybe their sisters of 1817 wouldn't have been. And that's what we love about them, right? They're they've got gumption in the same way that we like, you know, love watching Catherine Hepburn, you know, go toe to toe with Cary Grant. And I, I think those women really existed. A mm-hmm. lot of what survives is this is what women were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's like if people in 300 years look back and they find an issue of Cosmo and they say, wow, this is what women were doing back then. No, like Cosmo is, you know, one version of what women might do. Mm. So a lot of these Mm -hmm. adequate books are, this is what society thought women and especially young women and Mm -hmm. girls should do. Mm -hmm. What they actually did, I think, is a completely different story. Mm -hmm. So I can cut an author slack if she has her heroine dressing up in her brother's clothes and sneaking out of the house and going around London because that's physically possible. Can you prove to me that no girl in 1815 or whatever did that? No, of course you can't. And it's totally plausible that someone tried it, someone did it, so why couldn't your heroine? I don't have any problem at all with that. That's a good example, especially since uh, young women dressing in their brother's clothes have been immensely popular since Shakespeare and even before. Um. (laughs) Well, I think especially when you constrain women into a certain role and Mm -hmm. say, this is what you're supposed to do and these, all these many thousands of things are what you're not supposed to do. I mean, (laughs) I have a teenage daughter. I know that the surest (laughs) way in the world to make her want to do something is for somebody to say, girls can't do that or you can't do that. That's off limits. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, some women are, I don't want to say rule followers, but some women are more daring than others. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, those are the little girls who fell off the top of the monkey bars when they were four. You know, some people just have that streak in them. And so... I don't see why they don't have that streak. I don't see why 16-year-olds of today are more daring or bold or adventurous or rebellious than 16-year-olds of 1818. Why not? I don't think humans have changed that much since. Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) I mean, at least we've been been better at recognizing that, you know, other people are deserving of human rights, so... (laughs) hopefully things are moving in that (laughs) we are every day but that you know there to be fair there were people back then who were appalled by the slave trade oh for sure brought down the trade was women Mm -hmm. using to use sugar yeah they they drew the the direct line from slavery to sugar and they said well we're not gonna serve sugar anymore and it was this little drawing room rebellion of sorts and in a world when women didn't have the vote and they didn't have seats in parliament and they didn't have their own money they did go out and march and they did these little things and they they influenced the men in their lives you know it was yeah they didn't have all these all these freedoms and rights that women have now but women were working at the time within the society that they lived in some went outside the boundaries more than others but you know, there were people all along who have done things like that. Not all of them. It's true. Just like, you know, a lot of days, you know, now there's there's people who feel like, well, you know, I, I don't think racism is that big a problem and it's never bothered me. And they turn their back to it and close their eyes. And, you know, there were people like that back then. But there were also, you know, there was a spectrum just the same as there is today. For sure. And I think, again, I love, first of all, Drawing Room Rebellion needs to be the name of one of your next books because, oh my God, (laughs) I would read the crap out of that series. Dog ear all the pages. Um, But I think think you're right. There's this idea that um, there's blindness in every generation. And I think, you know, the arc of the universe tends towards justice and that arc, you know, bends slowly. Um, but I think it wavers, you know, yeah, it's not not a straight line, consistently increasing curve, right? For sure, (laughs) inflection points, (laughs) and it goes backward and it goes up and down, yeah, you know, it can can take sharp turns, so yeah, you you hope you you try to do your part to keep it bending in the right direction as as fast as you can. So has this conversation in romance about this implicit erasure of obscene wealth and it's where it's coming from, has this informed your writing? I know we've talked a lot about the research that you're doing right now, but like, is this a conversation that you're, you know, actively thinking about in terms of your own writing and like ways in which to address this sort of gloss or this blindness? Like there's a difference between, you know, being blind and being willfully blind. And I, and I, worry that historical romances they're willfully blind in some ways and like part of that is to keep the fantasy alive but I don't 
I don't know that the fantasy has to come at the expense of this kind of blindness. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I'm trying to think back through my books and the, the characters who've had money. Like mm-hmm. The Weston, in the Scandal series, Mr. Weston made his money in canals. Yep. Investing in building canals, which were like the super highways, the super pole highways. They sure were. Of, of their day. But, you know, they, were, they weren't built by slave labor. They were, they actually increased productivity and yeah and sped the way for the industrial revolution i mean mr weston was a very yeah he was an excellent speculator and like a really good dad i love mr weston you know he wasn't so much a speculator as he was just a a a guy who spotted what was going to be the next big thing yeah put his money into it yeah he had good Um, business acumen as they say yeah he did he wasn't afraid to to put his back into it yeah the, uh, and the, the my book coming out in the fall the the heroine's father is immensely rich mm-hmm. he's a nobody he worked himself up from nobody but he made his money speculating mm-hmm. he honestly speculated like during the long and drawn out wars with france and that's how he made his money so not and in the book, I don't really try to make it sound like, ooh, this was totally on the up and up. Like, mm-hmm. people kind of look down on him for it, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're the equivalent of, you know, the day trader or whatever. But, <laughs> you know, you didn't cheat. Right. You didn't steal it. You didn't, again, it wasn't really built on slavery. It was just you spotted the opportunity and you got your money in there. Yeah. There were people who made their money in banking and... Publishing. <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> Not so much. I mean, I love that one too. Uh, uh, nice like, try. I slide that one in there. I, I think there are people really get rich publishing. And, you know, but, um, I yeah, think, I mean, people made, people made money in other ways. People inherited just like enormous. Yeah, gobs and gobs of wealth. You know, if there were deposits of something valuable under your land, yep. you were set. Yeah. <laughs> people would pay you to come and dig it out. Um, you know, people invented things, railroads, you know, if you invested in railroads at the right moment, then, mm-hmm. you know, there was a fortune there. Yeah. There were relatively decent ways people could be obscenely rich. For sure. And like, there were people who were, you know, making patents. And I was just, one of the things that I think, again, where this like, romance is so special in that it does, especially like the research that you guys do is exhaustive and it's so interesting. But like, one of the things that I think that romance might, I don't want to say called to do, because I think that's like fraught. But like, there's this idea that the guy who invented the cotton gin had no idea what he was about to start in terms of American slavery and what the cotton gin would do to plantation life. He, you know, genuinely when he created that patent, he's like, I'm just going to make it easier to separate cotton. And 20 years later, when slavery was at its apex in this country, he came up with the patent for a particular kind of rifle barrel, which the union used exhaustively to, you know, speed the war effort to bring the union back together. And I think like that's one of those little anecdotes that we forget about Eli Whitney is that he was first and foremost an inventor and didn't think about the consequences of his inventions. And they had lasting historical consequences. And it's just like Eli Whitney was just a guy, you know? And I think romance is really, really, really good. And like you've said this, it's like, you know, I don't think people have changed that much. Human nature has like a particular kind of thing. Human stories are always going to be human stories. And I think what's really beautiful about romance is that it is universal and strangely and beautifully always anecdotal. <laughs> and I think like there might, yeah. you know, there might be space now for romance to sort of take that up and be like, well, if it's always universal and always anecdotal, like this is just one story and like the blank spaces of history, right? Like because history is written written by yeah. the winners and almost all of the winners have been white and rich. Um and like now it's a now it's a time to like maybe think about how those how those histories have been formed and like what romance can do to sort of like take back space. So I think indie publishing is the main hope for this. Ooh, okay. Self publishing. Because I see periodically discussions pop up where there people say, 
why why are all the historicals about dukes mm-hmm. why do half the rita finalists over the last 10 years or whatever have duke or earl or marquis or whatever in the title mm-hmm. weren't there any ordinary people who fell in love back then yeah <laughs> had satisfying stories and the answer there is publishers love them publishers love that and mm-hmm. i think it plays a little bit into cinderella fantasy but for so long publishers have really shaped what got published and gotcha. what was put out there and mm-hmm. so if you go to the store and this is all you see yeah you get used to it mm-hmm. and you come to like it mm-hmm. you know it, it's like you know that that weird you know maybe there's a dish that your mom made she made it a particular way and you love it that way mm-hmm. and it's your favorite and then you go somewhere else and somebody says you know i have this dish too and it's completely different and you're like Bleh. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Publishing is very female and it's mm-hmm. a lot of younger women especially. So they look at when they're buying a book, they have to say, Well, what's gonna sell? Mm-hmm. And they look at what's sold in the past. Oh mm-hmm. look, all these books about Dukes have mm-hmm. sold well in the past. Mm-hmm. So the safe bet and publishing mm-hmm. is always about the safe bet. Right. Is let's just buy more Dukes. Let's not take a chance on this you know, guy from India and this servant girl from you know, Yorkshire, mm-hmm. let's not take a chance on that, even though it's a beautifully written book, you know, we love mm-hmm. it, we just don't know how to market it. So I think that's played a role, but mm-hmm. now self-publishing takes that break off. Mm-hmm. Anybody can write the story that they want to write, and <laughs> publishers will notice and say, hey, you know what, it turns out people will buy and read books about different ethnicities and cross-cultural romance and you know maybe we should get in on that because they don't want to miss out yeah (laughs) so it's like the curve of justice publishing then slowly yeah I think that's a heartening note to end on, especially because, like, as we talked about before, the genre is really responsive to readers. And I think, you know, if that means putting our dollars and our keyboards and our podcasts in service to the stories that we want told, I think that's like one of the things that's so great about this genre is that, you know, as soon as we start hounding publishers and authors or it's like I love your style would you lend your talents to a cross-cultural yeah. romance I don't know that I would say hounding authors because <laughs> authors already have these stories you know what you can do with a what? Okay. Even if, you know what, I'm going to say something radical, mm-hmm. even if you didn't like that particular book, mm-hmm. because it's all looked at as a market, mm-hmm. you know, if books with an alien hero sell really well as a whole little niche market, more people will write them. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, Bigfoot romances. It's like a little market where <laughs> I, I could not make this up if I tried, where it's all about being, you know, captured by Bigfoot. And... <laughs> So, you know, people, people will go where the sales are. So a lot of times, you know, maybe the first couple of books out, you think, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind. It's a step in the right direction. But you know what? You just got to buy those books. You got to buy them and you got to say, all right, you know, people have been saying we want more books that are multicultural or, mm-hmm. or have these lesser known stories where the hero is not a duke or he's just an ordinary schmo <laughs> and you know that are set in america or mm-hmm. india or you know the tudor period or whatever it is you just have to buy those books because when the sales are there mm-hmm. the books the market will expand and more people will write books and the more people writing books you get better books there's more competition you know more people find them and say hey this is actually really really cool this book set in you know 1780s morocco i really like this are there more and so that's kind of how you you sort of have to to grow the market there's really no way around it other than to to buy them and that's why i think indie publishing is great Mm -hmm. because those authors in particular are they're watching very closely to see is this book selling am i am i making a living on this Mm -hmm. 
know, am, am I getting love from the community and are people really responding to my work? And that will encourage them to keep going. If a book doesn't sell, you don't usually go back and write six sequels to it. Right, you know? right. You're like, whoops, <laughs> time to find something new. Because, <laughs> you know, this mortgage isn't going to pay itself. Right, so. right. I think that's one of the things that I think is really great, uh, especially something that we can do as people who love the genre. It's like buy those books, talk about how much you love those authors, even if it wasn't for you. You can, you know, and be honest about that too. But it's like I'm putting my dollars oh, in to expand the yeah, market. Yeah. yeah, and I think you can say this is more the kind of book I want to read. And so right. Maybe I had a problem with what this heroine did in right. the book or something, but. This is a step in the right direction. Yeah. I want to reinforce that. I want to I want to put my money behind that and support it. Yeah. I think that's great. And the idea that like we can expand the market and that like, you know, the power is in the hands of romance readers. I think I, re- I really love that. I think that's a really positive place to uh, end this outstanding and delighting and fascinating <laughs> interview. I cannot thank you enough for doing this and how much it means to our little podcast. Um, oh, my pleasure. Are you going to be in Denver as a Rita finalist? No. Oh, no. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'll be doing yeah. something else fun, I'm sure. <laughs> I've been a Rita finalist before. And yes, I you have. never never been there one year i was there when i was a final <laughs> and the rest of the time no oh <laughs> all right well <laughs> no. i'm on the east coast denver is a long flight it is a long it's flight summer it is just, july 19th you know. yeah you got stuff to do you got two teenagers they're in college oh my gosh they're in college i'll be getting the request for i need all new towels <laughs> Caroline Linden, I cannot tell you what kind of a beautiful dream this is. I read Love and Other Scandals literally five times one year when I was really, really sad. And Joan meant so much to me personally. And also, (laughs) I'm going to, I just, I loved it so much. It meant so much to me. Tristan meant so much to me. That story meant so much to me. I think you're a wonderful author. And this has just been a dream come true for me and a totally happily ever after for me. So. Thank you. I'm so glad. You know, I wrote Joan for my college roommate. Yeah. Who's tall. She's 5'10", and she's like, I'm so sick of staring at the top of guys. <laughs> I thought, I'm going to write one for the tall girls. And so, if you look in the front of the book, it's dedicated to her. Uh, that's, that's my roommate, Julie. So. I love that even more now. That's. You know, like I said, there's something from my real life in every book. And like Tristan and all his little gadgets, mm-hmm. everything, all the things he experiments with are real. That lamp is real. Mm-hmm. The balloon guy is real. The shower <laughs> bath is real. All real, period, appropriate time stuff. And I looked it up. Like, my family, my husband, and my son are total gadget geeks. Mm-hmm. We have the first generation of every gadget. <laughs> Yeah. So that's where Tristan came from. Tristan is drawn from inside my house. The, <laughs> the long discussions about how can we like daisy chain these routers or whatever. Yeah. Down there. Uh, so all I know is I have an in-house tech team, which is amazing. It must so, come in handy. Oh, yes. Very much. I'm like, <laughs> I just want it to work. <laughs> I'm past the point where I'm like, now I'm old. I'm like, I just want it to work. I want to turn it on and have it work and just please go fix it. <laughs> my son's like, right <laughs> It did. Like, <laughs> You're oh, wonderful. My life is complete. Like, really, <laughs> really and truly. I, yeah, I can't wait to read what comes out this fall, and I can't wait to read what you come up with next. And I, I think this has been a really wonderful conversation, and I want to thank you again for being so generous with your time. Well, I, I was glad to, and it was fun. So thank you for inviting me. Have a great night. Right. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. Hey folks, it's Morgan. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Our logo is by Mary Reichman and our original music and editing is by Nick Gravelin. They're the best. Feeling woeful about waiting a whole week for more Womance? 
Well, chin up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us anytime on Twitter. We're at woe underscore mance or Instagram, womance, all one word. You can also find us on Tumblr at womance.tumblr.com. If you prefer to be more direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com. Can't wait to hear from you. And don't forget to tune in next week.